Hello everybody and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Bella, with me is Jonathan Wilson and with us today is Matthew Lorenzo, television presenter, having worked for many years in the business for the likes of the BBC, ITV and Sky Sports. Matthew is also a film producer and has worked on a number of films including Bobby, the film about the life of Sir Bobby Moore. Matthew, a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Uh, today we go back to the World Cup final of 1982 in Madrid, which finished Italy 3, West Germany 1. Matthew, why have you chosen this game? Um, I don't know. It's well, I do know. Uh, I'm, I'm half Italian. Um, I was never born there. Don't speak a word of the language. My father was born in London. He was chemically 100% Italian. And I think in true Italian style, that allows me to cover my bets when it comes to England <laughs> and Italy. And I was certainly covering them back in 1982. Um, uh, and that's when, you know, England, well, uh, Italy were more important to me at that time, mainly because my mate was genuinely Italian. And when they won that game, we ended up driving my Ford Escort round and round Trafalgar Square with a load of other Italian people. <laughs> And I wore the hooter out. The hooter stopped working. Um, and it's just it's just memories like that. They're, they are rose-tinted. They're golden memories. And the whole tournament was great. And that ending, to rush to the ending here at the start, was just fantastic. And I'd watched it on the telly. Uh, a year previously, I'd been sports editor of the Walthamstoke Guardian, which I used to call the Guardian, which was a fantastic technique for getting tickets for stuff. It wouldn't stretch to get me tickets to go to a World Cup. But I watched it on the telly, and that followed on from having seen the 78 World Cup on the telly and falling up with our dealers and the rest of them. And then it's, it's just, you know, we've all, we all watched these things on the television. Uh, I saw the 1970 World Cup. I loved that. I remember crying after the Germany game as I was lying on the carpet wondering why he'd substituted Bobby Charlton. And before that, there was 66 which I missed because my mother took advantage of the fact there was no traffic on the road. Mm. So she then took me to the barbers. So I missed <laughs> the World Cup final. Oh, dear. The more confusing thing with hindsight <laughs> was what the hell the barber was doing over Yeah. Um, but anyway, I've, I've managed to lead you right off the track, which is what I tend to do. But yeah, it's basically because I love that tournament. I, love, I thought it was a great footballing tournament. I became a proper Italy fan, hedging my bets as things went on. Uh, I've got a, a man love thing for Paolo Rossi. Uh, yeah, it had it had was the whole package for me. Yeah, a, a number of good reasons. Uh, Jonathan, the, the nineteen eighty two World Cup. See, I came in in nineteen ninety uh, with regards to World Cups, but I've heard many people talk about the nineteen eighty two World Cup, saying it was as as Matthew said there, foot, in a football sense, obviously. Uh, very entertaining and a very, very good World Cup. People often go back to that one and speak of it in these terms. Yeah, I mean, I do, but it was my first World Cup. And I think it doesn't matter how old you are, which World Cup it happens to be, your first World Cup is always special. It sort of sets the parameters of what a World Cup should be. Um, so I'm sort of glad that other people give me validation when I sort of think it was the best World Cup ever. Yeah. But just watching the highlights back of this final, just the aesthetic of it is perfect. Yeah. Yeah, Shirts yeah. should look like that. Shorts should be that length. The pitch <laughs> should look like that. The the definition on the camera should be you know, not too sharp, but not quite as fuzzy as it was in 86. This was just right. The noise, the air horns, that's what foreign football sounded like. Even sort of the graphics on the screen or when you saw the scoreboard and it, it was in Spanish. 
because you know, obviously the World Cup's in Spain, it, it sort of gives it that glamour, that sense of exoticism. And so I, I think more than anything else, this tournament was what made me fall in love with football. So I was... Mm. Uh, so the, you know, this game was what? This was the 11th of July, the final. So th- this game was two days after my sixth birthday. Um, but yeah, that World Cup was what really you know, got me into football. Yeah, T- two days before I was actually born, Jonathan. So you know, what a, what a momentous time. It was. <laughs> but, uh, but Matthew, it was the last World Cup in which England were more recent world champions than Italy. Quite incredibly, because the the last time Italy had won the World Cup before eighty two was in nineteen thirty eight, which seems quite a long time considering what, what we think of Italy now, with great pedigree and and uh, have won many tournaments. Obviously, regrettably from my point of view, Euro twenty twenty being the, the, a recent uh, major tournament win. But what what did you think of Italy at the time? They finished fourth in at the European Championships in nineteen eighty. Were you? As you said, you sort of hedge your bets and so on. Did did you think that Italy could do something at this tournament? No, not really. Uh, I'm a West Ham fan, mm. um, so I'm not used. To, apart from recent weeks, I'm not really used to having a, a team that I expect to do well. You know, the expectation is that they won't, and the same applied in this World Cup. It's just the way things panned out. Three group games, they didn't win any of them, and yet they managed to scrape in by virtue of having scored more goals than Cameroon. That's not an auspicious start. But from that point onwards, they beat the favourites, Argentina. They beat Brazil in arguably the the best game of the tournament. They beat Poland. Um, I think very rapidly, they made themselves favourites for that game against the Germans. Well, they were definitely had had the sort of popular will behind them because this Germany was so, so hideously unpopular. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's obviously, for, from an English point of view, there's all the normal reasons to do with Germany, but also you'd had the the fixed game, or not not the fixed game, but the the game where uh, they and Austria played out of a convenient one nil win, so both went through at Algeria's expense in in, in the final group game in Hihon, uh, which actually you know which brought condemnation from within Germany as well. There were a lot of Germany fans who um, I remember uh, Uli Hesse telling me about I can't remember his name, but there was sort of a a, you know, a famous German Uber fan who who followed them at yeah, every game, every friend that he'd be there. He stayed in the team hotel. He'd been following them from 1954. And from that, that game in Hihon against Austria, uh, he said he, he could never watch them again. So it wasn't... It wasn't just an English reaction against that West, West Germany. They were very unpopular. And then you had the, the semi-final against France and the schumacher Batistan. Incident and and a you know a, a beautiful French side three one up in extra time and managing to lose it on penalties. Mm. But jo- yeah, I mean Jonathan, you also had though. I mean, perhaps people in England were maybe not not so aware, but the backdrop of this, of course, not too dissimilar to two thousand and six with Italy, the the Tottenero scandal, the match fixing scandal. Yeah, I mean that, that's true, and and we should talk about that. But I, I think the immediacy of of what what happened with West Germany, you know, you, people. You know, it wasn't like today where we go into a tournament knowing everything about every team. Mm-hmm. There was some, you know, p- people who knew would have known, but the vast majority of the public would have said, oh, some, some scandal, whatever. But West Germany, you're actually watching it in the tournament. You're seeing this disgrace. But yeah, the, the Tottenero scandal was was obviously, I mean, on, on Rossi particularly. Yeah, Rossi was uh, caught up in this. A number of teams in Italy were. And so don't want to get too sidetracked uh, w- w- with this, but he was suspended... What was it for for three matches? 
was three, it? Years. Three, years, three years. Three years. Three years. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, it, and then the last year of that was uh, remitted, so he could play in the World Cup. Yeah. I mean, he, so, he he always protested his innocence, and I think it's a uh, it's very murky as to 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 what his knowledge of what was going on was. But it was a you know a, a classic Italian match fixing scandal that, that you know, led to AC Milan being relegated. You know, arrests on the pitch in in seventy nine or in eighty. 80, I think it must have been. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. Final game of the season. You have police literally by the side of the pitch. So it was, it was an enormous scandal. And it wasn't just Rossi who was affected, but you know, he was the one who got the ban and he was the one who was brought back. Mm-hmm. And just before the tournament. I mean, one of the reasons why Italy didn't win any of those group games, uh, I mean, actually, if you watch them back, they don't play as badly as I think the popular myth suggests. I think they're actually the better team in all three games, but they can't score because Rossi's mm-hmm. way off the pace. Yeah, and, and Matthew, had he been banned, then you know, your, your man crush with Paolo Rossi may not have been a thing, which w- would have been been quite a shame. But as Jonathan said, you know, it, it took a while to get going. The, the old cliches, notorious slow starters, and so on. Um, but in that second group phase, and it was the last World Cup to have two rounds of group stages, uh, if you like. Italy were 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 faced with Argentina and Brazil, as you mentioned earlier, which was by any stretch of the imagination, no mean feat. They beat Argentina to one and famously overcame that great Brazil side, which which many people thought might have won the World Cup that year. And that was where we saw Paolo Rossi uh, really burst onto the scene in that game where he scored a hat-trick. Uh, was that was it that hat-trick that caught your imagination with, uh, with, with Rossi? Yeah, well, I wasn't a, a football expert, so you know, I was new yeah. to him and, and, and new to... Uh, well, new to Italy winning things, as we've discussed before. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that wasn't a bad start um, for him and for, for Italy to actually get their acting gear. It was a fantastic game. Um, and I think the neutral, I think generally the neutral supports Brazil. And I think most people were at that time. And it could be argued that their self-discipline or lack of self-discipline mm. uh, led to that defeat. But I prefer to think not that it didn't. Rossi's spoke about um, scoring goals. And uh, I think it's that whole, the whole thing about scoring goals is quite interesting because I met Steve Archibald a couple of years ago. Um, it was an interview about something else, but he said at one point, you know, you make documentaries, don't you? I said, yes. And he said, I'd love to make a documentary about what happens when you score. I mean, you could call it the art of scoring, but it's a bit more than that. Because I did it, and I sometimes couldn't understand how I did it. And Rossi describes getting a goal. I was a tenth of a second faster than the defender, and I knew I was going to put it into the net and that he wouldn't catch me. Now, how can you quantify a tenth of a second? But there he's trying to explain what I think Archibald is trying to explain, which I don't understand, having two left legs, (laughs) what it is about scoring goals. that there There is something magical about it that you can't quite put your finger on and i'm demonstrating someone not being able to put his finger on something but archibald who knows more about scoring goals than i ever would says there's something there and it would be a fascinating fascinating documentary to get him to explain that uh, it, rossi was a fantastic goal scorer i think can't mention him in the same breath but i'm going to do it lineker was a fantastic goal scorer usually from about a yard out uh, i think all of that is very interesting. You may disagree. No, no. I, I mean, I, I think I think there's two aspects to it. So there's the 
uh, or to, to use sort of general aspects of it, there's the anticipation, the working out where the ball's going to going to be, and that could be anticipating the cross, or it could be anticipating a bounce off a defender. But there's also the instinct, the the um, the reaction, and then being able to control the shot or the header. And there's lots of research being done on this, and, and essentially, it's it's the, the 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 mental calculations you have to do are are too quick for the human brain. Mm. It makes no sense. So there's a very good interview that um, David Winner did with Wayne Rooney, and they talk for a long time that interview about his overhead kick against City. You know, the famous winner in the derby. And Rooney sort of explains it very coldly and very rationally, and so sort of says, "You know, I saw the ball coming in from the right. I realised it's going to be behind me. I realised I couldn't." Yeah, I wasn't going to be able to get ahead on it, so you know, I turned my body, got got between the ball and the defender, and I swung my right leg up. And none of this is possible. Yeah, and so I've read quite a lot of literature on this because this fascinates me. And so there's various tests being done. That basically, our, our reflex, our instincts, are, are, are somehow happen beyond the cognition, cognitional cognitive powers of the brain and what the brain does because it hates this this feeling of it's not in control the brain likes to think it's this sort of great nerve center with yeah some bloke pushing buttons and pulling levers to control everything so the brain makes up this story of oh yeah well i saw the ball coming in and then i, I put my body here and then i swung my leg up and of course that is what happens but your, your body's doing that quicker than the brain it's quicker quicker than than the electrical impulses can move down the nerves from the brain to um, you know, to to cause the limbs to move, so I think the whole thing is utterly fascinating, and it does suggest there's something in the unconscious in great sportsmen that can carry out these calculations incredibly quickly, far quicker than than the brain can, far quicker than than, than computers can. But sorry, you got me off on one of my hobby horses there. It was, <laughs> but, it, but, but, but the, the, you should do that documentary, and you I was should about to say I think he's duty bound, aren't you? Yeah, to, to do that. Well, I, I think the thing about Archibald is he's wise enough to appreciate it that that's that's something worth exploring. Mm-hmm. I haven't done it because um, when you're doing a documentary, again, I'm wandering off here. You have two questions to ask: one, would I watch it? And two, is someone going to buy it? Now, usually you can give a positive answer to the first one. The second one is a lot stickier. Um, but, yeah, I would watch it, definitely. Yeah. Well, you've got a talking head in Jonathan Wilson, surely, now. As- no, no, you need, you, need, you need experts. You need people who actually know what they're talking about. I'm sort of summarising <laughs> stuff. But, but it's, it's the same, you know, but, I mean, we really are drifting off topic here. But you know how uh, um, uh, uh, Diplodocus, uh, because, you know, because they're so, no, because they're so big, because they're so big. For? But they normally play up front, the big boys get their head on the thing. Swing a tail, so. <laughs> yeah, but this is, this is exactly the point. that They're so big that the distance from the brain to the end of a tail is so great that it, for the impulses to travel that far would take several seconds. So they've, I don't know if this is a theory whether they actually proved it, but Diplodocus has had a secondary brain at the base of their tail because otherwise the tail would be, you know, it would just take ages for the messages to get there. Did Peter Crouch have an extra brain? <laughs> that would be the question. Uh, but as loath as I am to go back to Paolo Rossi, uh, Jonathan, you know, he, he obviously scored, you know, to say that hat trick against Brazil and and showed his cunning. What what we, what what uh, Matthew was saying there that that you know quoting Archibald and so on. He really showed his cunning in that game. He's sort of well, yeah, and it's, you've also got to bear in, bear in mind the pressure he was under. So he, he, yeah. he'd been brought back. Yeah, they they they've done this sort of mm-hmm. uh, fiddle, call it whatever you want, to to make sure you can play in the World Cup, 
and he's gone four games without scoring, mm. and it hasn't played particularly well. Um, and Bear, I'm sure that was under pressure to drop. Yeah, him. he was, and it's it's great credit to Bearzot that that he didn't. Uh, and of course, you can go back now and you can sort of look at games. Oh, you look at his movement. Oh, his movement's fantastic, and actually, he was playing very well. But, but he's a centre forward who hasn't scored in four four games, having been yeah, having been brought back specially. Um, and so, yeah, he's under enormous pressure in that Brazil game, and, and uh, the yeah the, the first goal in that game. I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll we will do this game in in a future podcast. But I think it's interesting the order of the goals coming in that game. That the first goal is the back post header from the Cabrini cross, which is sort of an instinctive finish. You know, there's no sort of time to think. The other two, he has time, and I, I wonder whether he'd have been able to take the other two if he hadn't scored that goal first. Yeah. Um, but that, that you know that game against Brazil, um, I you know, I didn't have the same. Even even as a sort of five year old, I was sort of quite curmudgeonly, and I kind of got grumpy at how much everybody wanted Brazil to win. So I was definitely sort of quite pleased that Italy beat them in that game. And then was you know, desperately, once England had gone out, was desperately wanting Italy to win the tournament. So that, that team, um, I'm pretty sure as a, you know, as a five or six-year-old, I could have rattled off all you know, the starting 11 very, very easily. And, and so you know, it was, I had a great sort of um, you know, nostalgic rush watching the, watching the highlights back and seeing Bruno Conti making those runs down the right. And Cabrini, I, I, I love Cabrini, the attacking left back. Um, Oriali at the back of midfield, um, and 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 then yeah, you, know, you had uh, Gentile who who um, was that camera followed him against Argentina and, and you know purely focused on his battle with Maradona, and you saw how he pulled his shirt and you know, tore his shirt, but was constantly bumping him, constantly barging him, and you sort of saw a bit of the 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 darker side of defending and the the, the sort of I, I guess the 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 qualities we we attribute to to Italian defenders and then Rossi was the 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 you know the final link the sort of ruthless finisher uh, and after the Brazil game he was three in that game two against Poland and then then one in the final all the sort of stuff that a five year old lad from Sunderland could definitely get. <laughs> <laughs> uh, none of that beautiful stuff for me thank you very much um, all right chaps let's have a quick break and then we'll talk about the match after. Welcome back to the Greatest Games podcast on the Blizzard. So then, uh, we talked about Paolo Rossi. Uh, we mentioned uh, Enzo Berzot, the or, or Berzot, the, the the manager. What, what do you do? You, what, what are your memories of of him, Matthew? The man nicknamed the old man. Um, I tell you what, memories. As I, I mentioned earlier, uh, mm. facts aren't my business. I'm not yeah. great at facts, but I did. I did look up a few for this one. Just as a quick aside, and I'm all about sides, my boss at Sky uh, handed me the research. They, they have you, offer you a telephone book full of research and stats mm-hmm. before a game. I think it was a playoff final. There's a fact I can't remember. But I do remember him saying, take these, Matthew. Uh, there's a word there that you won't understand. I said, what's that one? And he pointed at one that said, prep. Uh, so preparation <laughs> which is very unfair because it's unfair um anyway prep for this i did and uh, there were two fascinating things that i found and the one that i can remember is that bearsot spent 40 minutes in rossi's hotel room before the final and he was under an immense amount of pressure they all were at the time talking about cubism 
which he had to prep up on himself because Rossi apparently was an art expert, uh, a passionate man about art. And so in order to relax him, they had this bizarre conversation about Salvador Dali and Pablo Picasso, mm. which apparently calmed him down. That is not a conversation that I think was held with Gaza at any point or, or Wayne Rooney. I found it fascinating. Uh, Bertzog, very brave man. I mean, you, we were talking earlier about how Rossi hadn't scored for a while. I think it was something like three years since he'd hit the back of the net. Uh, and he'd had been described as a ghost in the group games, the way he was just wandering around and not getting in, in, in front of goal. So I think Bertzog's faith in him was overwhelming. And of course... You know, he's been paid back now, but at the time, he must have been under an awful lot of pressure. Worse than that, I suspect, because the Italian press make out sort of like kindergarten sometimes. Yeah. I mean, he did call for a, a, a sort of, I forget the Italian term, for, but a sort of a press blackout at some point during the tournament. But I think that kind of helped, didn't it? I, I, you know, they, yeah, they, they, but yeah, they did have a you know, media silence. And I think it was after the second group game. It's after the, the drawn against Peru. But, uh, you know, it's a bit like England in 1990. They had something similar after the the allegations of um, uh, hanky panky in Sardinia, um, and I, I think that's yeah the, the the sense as a common enemy. I think can be quite a useful thing for a team, certainly in the short term. And I think it probably was a bonding thing for this Italy side because they actually yeah they had quite a lot of bad luck as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bergami was only playing. You know, Bergami was 18. He was only playing because of injuries. Uh, they lost uh, Colavati during the tournament. And then Graziani gets injured a uh, quarter of an hour into the final. So they, Antoni- they, they, they were losing players. Antonioni was out injured, wasn't he? Antonioni was out, was out, was out injured, yeah. yeah. So, sorry, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, Antonioni was out injured, Colavati was carrying an injury, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it was, uh, and he changed the shape to sort of a, what would you call it, a sort of a 5-2-3? Well, it, it, it's, it's the, um, uh, I, I th- this is one of the odd things about Italian football from the 60s onwards that, it took me a long time to sort of get my head around, but there's an inbuilt asymmetry to it. So this is what they they call, um, and I'm sure Matthew will correct my Italian, but il, uh, il gioco all'italiano. Um, close enough. Which is <laughs> thank you. Which is sort of the the next day, John from Catanazio. Uh, so you have a sweeper, and then you have sort of a, a four in front of them, but the left back is very attacking. So the left back sort of almost, you know, he covers the whole of the, the left wing. He's, you know, his left wing back. So that's Cabrini. And Bergami as the right back tucks in as a marker. Uh, and then to balance that, you have Conti wide on the right um, as a tonante. Is that, or is that a Spanish term? Uh, so shuttling back. So he, he's also covering the whole of the flank, but he's doing it from further up. Uh, then you have Ariali sitting in the back of midfield. Tardelli sort of making breaks forward. And Graziani as the second striker were playing out to the left to link with Cabrini. And all Italian teams played in that asymmetric way. But when you're playing against that, then the positions match up. That your, your sort of advanced right-sided player who shuttles back is up against the attacking left-back. So they, you know, they, they naturally mark each other. And when Hamburg win the um, European Cup against Juve in uh, the following year, in '83. They they deliberately play on that and they they pull Tardelli out of position. Uh, I think it's Felix Magat who, who does a job on him, uh, and it's it's a very simple thing, just refusing to play into this, the symmetry that all Italian teams play with. But yeah, that, that that's that's how that team's set up. It's the sweeper, then four in front of which the left back is very attacking, and then 
I guess you'd say, yeah, I guess you'd call it a 5-3-2, but it's it's not a sort of symmetrical 5-3-2. Yeah, and within that system, Matthew, Gaetano Shirea, the uh, the sweeper, was a very important player in that side. Do you, do you have any memories of him being dominant at the back and sort of breaking through with the ball? See, this is when uh, you get a journalist uh, answering a journalist. So Shirea, I don't want to talk about, but I'll be polite and say that's a good point you're making about Shirea. But I'd like Lovely. to talk about well, Gentile. No one knows. Well, far away. Spe- yeah. you speak about who you fancy. Yeah, uh, Gentile is my man, right? Um, because he was the enforcer, if you like. And Here's we, me we, thinking you were more cultured when it came to your defenders. <laughs> <laughs> is it West Ham fan? Of course not. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, actually, Bobby yeah. Moore Bobby should Moore, be. So Bobby Moore, yeah. But probably more, you know, uh, I spent three years of my life making a film about him. But I, I like Gentile because he was an enforcer. And we've all got them. For West Ham, you know, Billy Bonds used to do the dirty work with, with great aplomb. <laughs> I think Dave Mackay did it for Spurs. Um, you know, I, and I think Gentile did it for Italy. It's almost like you're on the side of the bully. So you don't mind if you're on the side of the bully, that's fine. Uh, and to call him a bully is probably doing him a disservice. But he spent two days watching videos of Maradona before he was sent out to man market. He ended up filing him, uh, fouling him 21 times, which must be something of a record. <laughs> Didn't get him sent off. In fact, in 500 games, he never got sent off for violent conduct, uh, which I find incredible. He then did his homework on Adair before the Brazil game, only to be told he was marking Zico. Uh, <laughs> I think Zico got his shirt ripped in that one too. And then in the final, he got Lipbarski and I think snuffed him out. So he's the player that I quite admire. He wouldn't be the most obvious candidate. Mm-hmm. I think he's been voted the dirtiest player in, in the world, in World Cup history. But I think that's a little unfair. Let's go back to Shirea, if you like. I don't know. No, but you're right to say that because Gentile, people who know him think of him as, as you say, trying to wrestle Maradona to the floor and sort of beat him up. But actually... The, the the preparation that he did and and he was a great man marker Jonathan he was very effective and he's a World Cup winner yeah and, and you know that's that's the system you need those two centre backs Gentile and Colavati to be to be great man markers and Shirea, um I mean obviously the the, the you know the tragedy that you know, he he dies in in eighty nine in a car crash in in Poland on a on a scouting trip for Juve um, and and that uh, maybe that colours the perception slightly but he, he was a he, I think he was a slightly strange defender for an Italian. There was a sort of there was a fragility to him um, because he did make those those great runs forward. He did go beyond um, the, yeah, the that, that the line of the defence. He he was a libero in the more sort of northern European sense, the way that Beckenbauer would have been, or um, or Kroll or somebody like that. So uh, yeah, I, I, and he's, he plays a key part in the certainly in the second half of the final, getting forward. So yeah, he was. I mean, it's a you know, banal thing to say, but he was you know he was a lovely player. Yeah, I was a hell of a spine for that side. We've mentioned Rossi, Tardelli, but I'm sure we'll mention him again and so on. But Dino's off in goal. I mean, it, it isn't too shabby. But let's get to the match itself. And and as you mentioned earlier, Jonathan, the the, the sound of the crowd, you know, the, the old Bernabeu and so on. I mean, it it really was a proper showpiece final, Matthew. What are your memories of? of sitting down and watching the game and kind of taking it all in. I think Jonathan made a good point about the quality of the pictures. It wasn't HD, but it wasn't Mexico, and it was just the right sort, and the captions were just the right sort. All you really needed, nothing too flash about them. And the build-up was great. The anticipation was fantastic. And then, as I say, 
my relationship with Rossi, one-sided because he knew nothing about me, um, <laughs> was, you know, it, it, the first goal was terrific. It didn't look like a great goal, but if you analyse it, which I'm sure Jonathan can do better than I, it was. It was the it was a brilliant goal for a poacher, which is a demeaning term, really. It's the one that I was talking about where he was a tenth of a second ahead and he knew in that time that we discussed earlier, that time that the human brain has no cognizance of that he was going to beat him and score the goal. So that was terrific. I could go on to the other goals, but anyway, that's how it... But I, I think that goal, goal also, it shows the quality of, of Gentile there because it's his cross. Mm. Yes. So people think of him as a thug, but you know, it's a quick free kick taken by Tardelli out of Gentile who, who whips in this you know, really good cross. And Cabrini, who's, who's, who's missed a penalty in the first half, yeah. Just can't quite get there the near post. And then Rossi bundles in at the back post, got ahead of his marker, which you know, is exactly what you're saying. That, that, just having that, that reaction that's a tenth of a second faster than the defender. So he gets his body between the ball and, and the defender. And then it doesn't really matter what contact he gets, it's, it's going to go in. Yeah. And, and it's funny because both defenders we've been talking about, Gentile and Shirea, were both, as you, as you say, instrumental in, in the two goals. You know, it's 11 minutes later. Uh, Shirea wins the ball. He sort of starts the move from deep as he'd like to do, moves up with play. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure, Jonathan, it's him who plays the ball to Tardelli. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it is. It is. It's it, um, he, because uh, Breitner is dispossessed, I think, yes. by Gentile. I couldn't quite, it wasn't quite clear on, I, I couldn't. But yeah, that's a drawback with those pictures that you Yeah, have, you know. <laughs> the, the, from the position on the pitch, I think it must be him. It, it, it's possible it was, it was Bergami tucking in. Uh, but it's actually a bad pass from Rummenigge, who who had a poor tournament. I mean, he's carrying an injury, never quite lived up to his billing. He's and he also two goals in the tournament. Though. Yeah, but he he was never quite. I don't think he was yeah quite. It is. I mean, I know he had the the. He was more injured in '86, but he. I, I think sort of the. I think Rummenigge is is underestimated as a player outside of Germany because his his two World Cups were he wasn't quite at, at his best. And also he's sort of playing in, in that slightly odd uh, right-sided role uh, with you know Fisher through the middle. Um, and it's, it's Breitner. And Breitner, you know, we think of as a fullback, but he was playing in midfield, gets dispossessed. Uh, Shirea then you know, picks up the ball, surges forward. He exchanges passes with Conti and then carries on his run. So you know, this is the point about him not being a, a sort of a traditional Libro. He's, he's much more Northern European in outlook. Uh, takes the ball into the box and then cuts it back for for Tardelli, who I think miscontrols it. Yeah, I agree with you. It turns it turns out to be a brilliant touch, mm. but his first touch surely he didn't want to go that wide, but it it creates the space for the shot and then he lashes it in the bottom corner. Are you suggesting he'd be disappointed with that? <laughs> I think he'd be quite happy. He looked quite happy. He looked very happy. <laughs> he looked like a man who had just made amends for a huge mistake and there was relief and all sorts of expression uh, in his face. But it's the great... It's The, the celebration. The yeah. celebration is amazing, Matthew. I mean, you, you talked earlier about the kind of the, the emotions of watching the World Cup, especially um, a World Cup when, when all the ingredients seem to be there and, and, and so on. But his face like just sums up for me anyway the the passion and everything with football what, again your memories of, of that moment yeah that, that's the that's the face that you remember not just from that game that competition but i think from every world cup uh some idiot poll they voted it fourth and why it isn't tough i don't know maybe i'm biased towards the italians <laughs> but he said that in that moment it's it's a bit like 
just before you die, you see your whole life flash before you. He said, I saw my whole career from being a kid before my eyes. And that was the realization of the dream that I'd had since I was a child. Now that's an Italian being very emotive, but I, I can sort of get what he means because the look on his face, I mean, if you could describe ecstasy or you could portray ecstasy, it would be that. And it was an ecstasy shared by an entire nation. So that's a glorious, glorious image and deserves to be on every World Cup titles package from here to eternity. But it's also the aesthetic of it. You know, the his hair soaking with sweat sort of flying <laughs> back. You see, I'm sure if it were in HD, you'd have been able to see the individual beads of sweat flying off. The shirt sort of clinging to him. Mm-hmm. It, it's and you know the, the 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 light is just right. It's 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 just dark enough. Because it, it's it's an incredibly beautiful image. And do you know what he was shouting as he as he ran over to the bench? Do you know? Yes. Oh, go on then. Tell me. N- nil nil, lads. <laughs> he was. Sh- <laughs> he was I shouting. Didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about the poor touch. Yeah. He was shouting Marco Tardelli. Was he was he? just screaming his own name. <laughs> oh. Really? Yeah. I kind of wish you'd never told me that. <laughs> no, I think it's kind of... I mean, I, I, there's two ways of looking at it. You could say there's a, <laughs> there's a weird arrogance to it. But I think the more romantic way or the, the more sort of innocent way is he's, it's like he's commentating on himself. He's screaming yes. his own name because that's what you do in the playground when you score a great goal. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah. so... The- Pretending he was Marco Tardelli, he actually was Marco Tardelli, yeah. and he was yeah. that eight-year-old realizing his dream. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that, Jonathan. Uh-huh. Yeah, I hear you did something similar, Jonathan, recently in a cricket <laughs> match. But the less said about that, the better. But uh, but Italy two 0 up, and uh, I mean, with that kind of celebration as well, it, it really was. Again, I say this not having watched the match live, but it seemed to be you know that was probably game over. Well, 21 minutes to go. And, well, you know, I know, but the the manner of the celebration. And also, you know, famously, what should you never do with Germans? Never yeah, write them off. Never write them off, yeah. Well, yeah, true enough. I mean, the, the, the next goal comes for Italy, what is it, 12 minutes later. And, I mean, Germany looked done, didn't they? The outer belly's got plenty of time to control the ball, Jonathan. I mean, talk us through the goal, because it... Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, Conti, who, I, I, I mean... I think Conti was probably Italy's best player in the tournament. Yeah, for all that, yeah, Rossi obviously got the goals and, and uh, Gentile was vital and Tardelli was vital and Oriali and Shirea and Cabrini all had great tournaments and Bergami was there as an 18-year-old. But I, I think Conti's actually the, 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 probably their best player in that tournament. And he gets away down the right and cuts. It's a very strange goal. Cuts the ball across, and uh, Altabelli, who, who's come on for Graziani, um, I, I, just, I, I don't know how he's conceivably in that much space. But he's just sort of what twelve yards out, in loads of space, and Schumacher comes flying off his line, uh, and he sort of just knocks the ball around him. At which uh, you know three defenders suddenly appear, but he just has to knock it into the net, which he which he does. Yeah. And and it was it was all too easy. And surely then by that point, Matthew, you were celebrating because that was the game over. Well, what that helped actually with is my knowledge of the Italian language, um, which is min- minimal. It's uh, Grazia and Bira uh, and stuff like that. And now it's Rossi Tardelli Alto Belli Trea Uno, which is all I have to say whenever I meet an Italian, either here or there, 
and they smile and I'm in. It's uh, it's uh, and I recommend it to, to, to both of you. Rotti Tardelli Alto Belli. Uh, and my memory of that is yes, we've won it. And I, my thoughts uh, were echoed, I think, by Sandro Bettini, the Italian president, who you can see in the box standing up and getting very, very excited and looking like a cross between uh, Ferrari, Enzo Ferrari, and, and a Mafia Don. And I think he turns at one stage and wags his finger. Could have been at Juan Carlos, who was there as guest of honor, or the entire German delegation. But it was as if to say, at 3 0 up, with not long to go. You can't catch us now, which would make him a very brave pundit in my book. Um, but yeah, it was it was celebrations all the way around the house. Then, and they scored their goal, but it was merely a consolation. And you could see by their reaction that they knew it was beyond them at that point. Yeah. Yeah, Paul Brighton obviously gets a, a, a consolation. And, and so becomes one of, I think, still only three players to score in two World Cup finals. I believe so. With Pelé and Vavar. Mm. But it's, it's actually quite poor defending. After all we said about Italy, it's um, your Conti, uh, who's about half the size of Hans-Peter Briegel, famously a former decathlete. You can't talk about Hans-Peter Briegel without saying he was a former decathlete. But he was a huge muscular bloke. And Conti somehow knocks him, knocks him to the ground outside the box. Hansi Muller takes the free kick. And then there's two attempts to clear it, and neither are particularly convincing, and, and Breitner volleys it in, but there's, there's, what, five minutes to go, and yeah, it's there's no real celebration. There's not even really a rush to get the ball out of the net. They, they sort of know it's done. Mm. Shame for Dino's off not to keep a clean sheet, but I'm sure he'll uh, not be too fussed, Jonathan. But a, a little word on him. He made his well, yeah, I mean, or 40 years old. Yeah. Um, it had been there all the way through. It was a great, great calming presence. Um, 1968, he made his debut for the Italian national side. Yeah. So he'd been there for a while. And followed the tradition of, of um, goalkeepers captaining Italy to, to World Cup glory after um, Combi in in 34. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, I mean, he never quite know. And particularly in those days, he didn't know to what extent he was doing the organising of the defence and to what extent it was Shirea. But clearly his sort of calmness and his experience were key. And he makes that brilliant save against Brazil um, about five minutes ago, the header from, from Oscar, that he, he not only gets down to, down to his left, uh, but, he, but he holds it. And, you know, that's, a, that's a save that I think should be talked about far more because if that had gone in, Italy don't go through. They had to win that game. A draw would have put them out. And, and, and Zoff, you know, Rossi, you know, understandably gets a hat trick, so gets all the praise. But Zoff makes a really, really good reflex save with mm. you know, a few minutes to go that, that that keeps him ahead. Yeah, and Matthew, how long was it after the final whistle you were out and about in your mate's car around it central was, London? It was my car. It's my Ford Escort. Yes, we headed straight from uh, Woodford in Essex, where he lived, straight to Trafalgar Square to join the throng, and it was it was just fantastic. You know, it was as though. So, how, how many Italians were there? It was mobbed, absolutely mobbed. In fact, it, it had been a centre for celebration in the preceding games. Um, <laughs> my mates, another mate's father, for some reason, and I have no idea why, dressed up as Mussolini and was on the back of a cart being pulled by two donkeys when he was arrested because this was seen as. I don't know if the word inciting, I don't know. But inciting, Inappropriate, maybe. <laughs> anyway, yeah, winding up the crowd. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, it was carnage, but it was fantastic. Because there's one thing you can say about the Italians, they do know how to celebrate and they, they have a joy about them, which is infectious. And I, I was thoroughly a part of that. It was great. Mm, marvellous. 
Well, Matthew, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this game and uh, and hearing some of your memories uh, pre, during and post-match. <laughs> I could tell you one more before you wrap it up. Oh, please do. Go, go on, go on. So um, I'm now working for Sky and uh, I'm doing German football, Bundesliga, with Tony Woodcock and we become mates. And Tony, who used to play for Cologne, had a good relationship with the club. So he would organise England matches against Germany and there was a second one against Italy. Now um, Gordon Banks played in one, Hurston Peters played, Mick Mills I mean it was a star-studded lineup, and one sub uh, who you're listening to now and uh, I played against Paolo Rossi in the England-Italy oh, yeah. game and it was there that I got my nickname One Touch because I came on for the last 20 minutes and I touched it once <laughs> so that's I, I played against Paolo Rossi. That's where I should yeah. leave it, really, shouldn't I? <laughs> well, I, I? If I may, how important was that touch? Uh, not very important. Oh, not okay. at all. I mean, I think yeah. it could be argued that it hit me rather than I hit it. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. maybe we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Like um, Wayne Rooney and uh, Steve Archibald and Paolo Rossi, you just can't explain that touch. It, <laughs> it was. It was all about the. Uh, it was. It was about the body overtaking the brain. Uh, but there we are. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's been. It's been a pleasure. And, and for more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. Everybody, uh, Jonathan, and I will of course be back next week with another great game from the history of football. See you then. <laughs>